Welcome to One Haas, a podcast devoted to bringing the Haas community closer together through your stories. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and my mission is to help open our eyes to the network we never knew we had. Today, I'm joined by Adam Brudnick of the Full-Time 2019 program. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I uh, met Adam a couple weeks back. Uh, we were putting together this start off, well, what would you call it, like a launch podcast? Yeah, for a startup podcast for BEA. Adam, can you walk us through your background a little bit, starting uh, with college? Yeah, sure thing. So um, I went to a school called Wesleyan in Connecticut. Uh, it's a liberal arts college. Um, people usually group it with the New England liberal arts scene, like the NESCAC is the athletic league. Technically, it's part of the Little Three, which I guess historically includes Amherst and Williams, but Wesleyan is by far the least well-known of those three. Wesleyan, it's an interesting school. It's about 3,000 people undergrad. It's extremely liberal, at least historically. It's a whole podcast we could do in terms of the the trends over time and where the administration is taking it. Wow. But uh, it's a great school. I had, I had a lot of fun there. Um, they get a lot of grants from the NSF and the NIH, so they've got a strong science component. A really, really good econ program. And uh, for me personally, what I thought was great is they had uh, a huge, they still have a huge music department, both uh, from the academic side and also just from the student side. For 3,000 undergrads, they did a survey once, mm-hmm. over 100 active bands from 3,000 people. Wow. So most people who played music were in two or three bands at the same time. And the way it worked, it was in the middle of nowhere. Uh-huh. Everyone had houses. So you'd play house parties. <laughs> like every weekend, there were probably three or four shows you could see, usually at least two on a night, I whether see. it's at a frat house or someone's backyard or whatever. It was super, super fun. So are you from Connecticut? I'm from Boston. We're all okay. north of. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, East Coaster. Yeah, until uh, now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually have to ask you, like, do you, do you plan on staying out here afterwards or... Yeah, for the time being, you know, we'll see how far this goes. I okay. actually, so when I was at Wesleyan, I got very fortunate to find my way to McKinsey for an internship my junior year. Mm-hmm. And uh, that internship was out in San Francisco back in 2012. So that was my first exposure to West Coast lifestyle. I'd always had, you know, in my head, the idea that I wanted to try it out out here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd always admired SF from afar, from Boston. And in a lot of ways, it's a similar city to San Francisco, right. similar size, very academic oriented, you know, a lot of similarities, right? Mm-hmm. Just the weather's better out here and there's more interesting companies. Yeah. So I tried it for that summer and I loved it. Would have actually come out here for full time, except uh, personal life brought me back out east. Uh, my girlfriend had a year left in college. So I see. came back to New York, did that for four or five years. But yeah, always coming back out here was the plan, the long-term plan. So going to try this out for grad school and see how long uh, I can make it work for. So you continued on at McKinsey after your uh, summer internship out mm-hmm. here in SF. Uh, seems like Back in New York? Yeah. Yeah. So I rebounded my offer from here to New York. And what kind of consulting did you do there? So, uh, you know, I went to liberal arts college because, well, it's a liberal arts college. You learn a little bit about a lot of things. One of the things I didn't know that much about was business. Mm-hmm. You know, there's very, very little in terms of startup activity coming out of Wesleyan. Um, the percentage of students who go in traditional white collar jobs, like that you might imagine coming out of a business school, like the obvious ones being banking or consulting, let's say, mm-hmm. um, very, very low as a fraction of the student body. And I wanted to get some exposure to that. Um, I had some long-term goals I wanted to achieve in my career and I felt like I needed to upskill and build up my network a little more and consulting seemed like a great way to do that. Right. So I didn't come in with any particular hypothesis in terms of, I want to focus on say healthcare consulting or finance consulting or whatnot. I just wanted to learn 
business. So right. to me, the McKinsey, you know, for a lot of people, it was the liberal arts college of uh, the professional world. And that's yep. kind of how I treated it. So I did mix of strategy work and operational work across a whole spate of industries. Like when I put it on my resume, it's actually kind of funny. It's just like probably six or seven different industries in two years. And so you look at it and it's like a little bit of everything. It's a sampler yeah. plate, but a uh, jack of all trades, master of none. It's fascinating. You just said what you said about McKinsey because I think maybe it was Epa Rixie. He was he went to Bain, mm-hmm. Bain in Dallas, and, mm-hmm. and similarly, you know, everybody talks about it was a culture that attracted them to that company or to mm-hmm. that division. It's it's very interesting to hear you say that about McKinsey. Uh, how it's like the liberal arts college of the professional world. Professional yeah. world, yeah. I mean, that's what attracted me to consulting. Mm-hmm. Um, I was never the kind of person who was like, I got to do consulting. This is what I want to do. Like that just wasn't me. For yeah. me, it was a little more. Transactional in the sense of there's a thing I want to get out of this. Let mm-hmm. me go get that education, and that's right. how I treated it. That's amazing. And then after McKinsey, where'd you go? Dating back to God, probably 2008, 2009 in high school. I had a hypothesis that what I wanted to do in my professional life was work at the intersection of science and business mm-hmm. for the goal of solving the climate problem. Mm. Um, that was around the time that uh, Inconvenient Truth had come out. Um, Day After Tomorrow, fantastic documentary about uh, the future of New York. Um, and I had a whole other host of other reasons in terms of why I landed on that, but that was my own personal uh, motivation from high school, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, that informed why I went for a school like Wesleyan. There's a lot of science, a lot of econ, but also the place to explore. Uh, and to me, McKinsey was a way to build the skills out that would let me be effective in that mission of trying to accelerate the deployment of technologies that'll make climate change not as bad. Makes um, sense. I'm not the kind of person who's like, I love renewable energy. I love efficiency. I love electric vehicles. I was yeah. much higher level. Like, okay, let's solve the problem. Whatever technology is at the point where I can have the highest marginal impact, to put right. it in mathematical terms, that's where I'll be. And I have to continue to skate to where the puck's going to be, but that was my thought. That makes so, sense. So I uh, did my two years at McKinsey. And uh, around that time, it's up or out, right? And so you have to either keep going down a path, pick a specialization, go down the manager side, the path to partner, or mm-hmm. go do something else for a while. And I had, I was fortunate, I had the opportunity to keep going down that path. But one of the things McKinsey didn't have on tap that it wasn't able to offer me was the opportunity to focus on the climate change business, broadly defined, right? Mm-hmm. Clean energy, electric vehicles, whatever you call it. Mm-hmm. There just isn't enough work there at that scale in order to build a career around it at McKinsey. And mm-hmm. so around that time, I started looking for opportunities elsewhere. I was fortunate to have done a little bit of work there. You know, you can find one-off projects. I did probably one project a year in the space. Right. And uh, I met someone, uh, senior leadership on that project, who knew I was interested in it and knew of an opportunity he thought I might be interested in taking and made that connection. So my next two years, give or take, was spent working in clean energy. Nice. That was at the uh, New York Power Authority. It was. Sounds mysterious. You haven't, you haven't heard of it? I mean, it's a pretty well-worn path from McKinsey to the New York Power Authority. Like, everyone <laughs> does it, you know? The New York Power Authority. So what it is, is it's a public authority, which means it's a corporation owned by the government, which is a little strange to hear about coming in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. I mean, you hear about like... Hear about China having... Yeah, China or Brazil. State-owned enterprises. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, or Russia, but no, not in the States. But there's more of them than you'd realize, especially in the Northeast. So there's like people have heard of uh, the Transit Authority, right? Mm-hmm. The MTA. That's a state-owned company. Mm. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey that runs JFK and Newark. That's a state-owned company. Right. So the Power Authority is similarly a state-owned company. Um, the difference between NIPA, the New York Power Authority, and these other authorities is that NIPA is entirely self-funding. Mm. So long and short of the history, um, it makes electricity. 
uh, it generates and transmits electricity. And it was created back in you know 1930 by a bill and actually got into operation in the early 1950s running a power dam, a hydroelectric dam up at Niagara Falls. Mm. And so back in the 30s, during the Depression, there was like they were looking at the Niagara Falls and there were a bunch of private companies, Westinghouse, General Electric, who were uh, making bids to buy the land or the rights to the land to build power dams as a private operator. And the government was evaluating these bids, but eventually what they decided was, you know what? Niagara Falls is a natural resource. It belongs to everyone. So rather than auctioning this off as a one-time payment to a private company and then having the private company capture the benefits, let's create a a public entity to operate and run that on behalf of the people of New York, Mm -hmm. to whom Niagara Falls in some sense belongs, I'm putting Mm -hmm. air quotes around that, uh, and then use the proceeds to help all New Yorkers. And Mm -hmm. so that was the idea, and that's why the Power Authority got built. So it was an eminent domain takings, in a way, of uh, Niagara Falls. Um, And so... Once they built the power dam back in 1950, um, they built a couple other ones throughout the state. There are a couple other types of power plants that they operate. Today, it's roughly 80% hydroelectric, and the remainder typically natural gas, which is the cleanest type of fossil fuel. And they generate between 2 to $3 billion in revenue every single year and um, private operations from operating these plants. So there is a hydro dam at Niagara Falls. Oh, yeah. They, they, so the falls themselves are still visible. It's not like they took Niagara Falls and put it behind a wall and said, no more Niagara Falls. No. What it is, there's a gigantic river that feeds Niagara Falls. Yeah. And what they did is they basically, like if you ever play with sandcastles when you were a kid and yeah. you can dig in the sand and water will flow around, they kind of dug in the sand and brought some of that water off to the side. Like it's a cliff face there. And uh, so rather than the part, rather than have it all go over the falls, they took some fraction of it, say 50,000 gallons a minute or whatever the number is, um, and made it like a man-made river to a man-made part of the cliff where it just falls through some generators and makes power. The Canadians also have one, by the way. So there's a New York side, which yep. has the New York Dam. There's a Canadian side, which is the Canadian Dam. And they work together to manage the water flow down uh, the river to make sure that the Niagara Falls has enough water to impress the tourists. So it's kind of like three different areas for the water to fall, the natural one and then these two dams. That is fascinating. You know, I, I've been to Niagara Falls, I don't know, 10 times there's a whole museum on the, the New York side about the New York Power Authority. That's that's got to really? be more fun. They actually okay. just, they opened it like a year or two ago. Okay, okay. I was going to say it's actually I... surprisingly fun for uh, an electricity museum. They've mm-hmm. got some nice exhibits, but okay. Yeah. Well, we'll take Adam's advice and go check it out. <laughs> but I never knew that there are two dams there. Yeah. Um, I guess what kind of projects do you work on there that were? Yeah, I guess so um, or eco-friendly. Yeah, so the idea is that they generate all this revenue, right? Two to three billion dollars a year, and that's even after giving practically free electricity to the subways, giving electricity to companies like Alcoa or General Electric um, who have power uh, production facilities up in upstate New York. So economic development incentives, right? And some other odds and ends that they do. Even after all of that, there's enough leftover power from things like the Niagara Falls Dam that they make all this money from just the sales, right? And so the question is, what do you do with that money? In a private corporation, like you would reinvest that money Maybe you pay some bonuses, maybe do some stock buybacks, return it to your shareholders through a dividend, but those are kind of your options. Mm -hmm. For a public company, um, anything that they don't use, they give back to the state as a dividend in some sort. They call it a voluntary contribution, but not much about it is voluntary. And so the idea was uh, the New York Power Authority had been able to do a lot of good both you know, absolute terms, but also in financial terms in the past 10, 15 years before I'd showed up. And they built up a pretty sizable war chest um, in terms of how much money they've been able to save and the financial performance of the company. Like It was a very much an ongoing concern. And the senior leader at McKinsey I knew, who was connecting me with them, um, knew the CEO mm-hmm. of NIPA. And through that connection, we figured out that the CEO had an ambition to take some of that money that they had saved up 
and uh, try to reinvest it in the business, just like a private corporation would. But because it's a public corporation, there are public benefits. And so the reinvestment that they were looking at was to try to figure out ways to use those resources to advance the clean energy ecosystem mm-hmm. in New York State. Um, and, and not just advance it in the sense of, well, let's go pay for a wind farm, just like mm-hmm. everyone else is doing. Right. Sure, that is a marginal impact, but there's no um, multiplier effect on that, right? Like this is the kind of stuff that would happen anyways, mm-hmm. building wind farms so long as it's economically viable. And again, as a corporation, um, NIPA would only ever invest in things that are economically viable. So there, there's no incremental lift there. So the, the goal was to try to figure out ways to um, find parts of the ecosystem where you could have leverage, mm-hmm. right? Where for whatever reason, perceived risk, attention, just more lucrative uses of time and resources, even though this hypothetical leverage point was lucrative, there might have been even more lucrative ones that got tackled first. Mm -hmm. Uh, These underserved, underpaid attention to parts of the market, where if you had someone push at that point, it would pay dividends across the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So that was the idea, was to find places like that and then do things there to accelerate the ecosystem. And that's that's very high level, but that was what they brought me on. Can you give us an example? And and also, can you touch upon this this multiplier effect that you mentioned before? What, What did you mean by the wooden farms wouldn't have as big of a multiplier effect. Yeah, so I'm trying to think of the best way to think about it. Where, where a lot of us people listening are just laymen, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. So uh, the analogy that's coming to mind, and this also probably is too specific for an absolute layman, but banks, right? Mm-hmm. The way banks actually work is you and I will put our $1,000 each in our bank account, right? And we expect to be able to go to take out $1,000. The bank doesn't actually hold my $1,000 in a vault somewhere, as well as your $1,000, as well as everyone else's $1,000. They actually keep about 10% of it on-premises, and the rest they lend out. Mm -hmm. So in economics terms, that's called a multiplier effect, where more money is being passed around in the economy than actually exists because of this lending function of banks. And so when I think of a multiplier effect, that's kind of the archetype I have in my head, where I can spend a dollar to invest in some part of the market, and it's going to pay dividends down the road. So taking it a little bit closer to what an investment for a business might look like, from an economic perspective, building roads, mm-hmm. right? If you build a road, maybe it's a toll road, right? You invest in the project and then it pays from people paying tolls, but that actually creates net gains for society because you're letting people drive to work or yeah. create businesses or rest stops or fast food joints or whatever it is. Right. It's an example of an investment that would pay dividends in a sense. Mm. An investment that would be less like that would be just building a McDonald's on the side of the road mm. in isolation, not right. as part of a larger mall. So like, yes, it's a business and you're making money, but the impact of that business in some sense is much more close to where the investment was made. And I so see. when I was saying a wind farm doesn't have pay dividends throughout society, yes, it pays dividends in the sense of cleaner air results in fewer healthcare costs, right? Mm-hmm. Or it's more jobs or something along those lines, but it's fairly localized. It doesn't actually stimulate follow-on investment in more clean energy mm. directly. And so the idea of something that would have leverage would have a multiplier effect. There is an example in Texas where, similar to roads, what they literally do in Texas is they have something called credible renewable energy zones. And they basically will go ahead and say, this seems like a good area to build power plants, wind farms, solar farms. And that's where the city is. Mm-hmm. The only problem is that there's no highway for the energy to get from A to B. Mm-hmm. And no one wants to build the power plants without having the electricity highway because that's risky and it's expensive. You can't really do both. And no one wants to just build the highway without having the power plants because that's also risky. Uh-huh. So nothing happens. In that case, what the government literally does there is they say, we're just going to build the highway. right? And they invest in the highway and they'll make money on it. But they take that riskier thing, they take that step, and their investment in the highway pays dividends because it lets private developers down the road build those power plants. Mm. So that, that's the kind of thing we were looking at. 
I see. Well, that's really fascinating. And it's it's tough to wrap my head around it too, because it's it's tough to see the differentiate like where the government ends and where the, the private corporation begins. Yeah. Um, in some of these scenarios. And that's uh I think that's something we just take for granted. Yeah, it was actually, I'd never really, that was exactly my position coming into it. I just took it for granted. And to be honest, that was one of the biggest things we spent our time thinking about is what is an appropriate action for this weird hybrid entity to take that's part public, part private, that doesn't want to be throwing money away, wants right. to be generating a return in excess of its cost of capital, um, but also doesn't want to crowd out private investment. So one of the other reasons we didn't want to just build wind farms is we had a lower cost of capital than an average private corporation because in some sense we were backed by the state of New York. Right. So our bonds had a lower rate of return, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And so imagine there are five good wind farm locations in New York State. And there's a bidding process, whatever. Because we have a lower cost of capital, we could potentially take the best one because we can build it for cheaper because our money is less expensive mm-hmm. and then crowd out private investment. And that has a negative effect, both economically and also just politically. Mm. So um, trying to find that line where we can have a positive effect as in a pu- generating public good for the yeah. overall investment market, while still being a good business decision. That was a really, really tough overlap to think through. But it was, it was really fun. It was one of my favorite parts about the job, that's, certainly from a strategic perspective. That sounds amazing. It was really, really cool. <laughs> so at this point, it definitely begs the question, um, what brings you to Haas? Also, you know, tell us about Dorm Room Fund and, and your involvement uh, at Haas. Yeah, so, so uh, I came to Haas right after my time at NIPA. Um, and in some sense, it was a reaction to it, but it, not in the sense of like, oh, I did government and now I'm out. That's not what it was. Mm-hmm. I really, really loved my time at NIPA. Um, what we wound up doing, what I wound up leading there was, uh, you can call it a change initiative. I, I don't like this term because uh, people roll their eyes when they hear it, but I don't know how else to describe it. I was a quote unquote intrapreneur uh-huh. um, in the sense that I was charged with, you know, I was given authority by the CEO and the C-suite, just go think of things we can do. Mm-hmm. The thing that we wound up doing was creating a new business line, a completely new um, source of revenue, a new business unit, because no one else within the organization was set up to do this particular thing uh, within NIPA. And so um, had the idea, built a team around it, talked to customers, got the investments, built first versions of the product, sold it, all, all that whole thing that you do with startups right. um, just within the company. I'm happy to go into details on what it is. It gets wonky fast at a high <laughs> level. It's uh, kind of like building an app store for renewable energy. And okay. so that's an example of this multiplier effect. We're like, yes, if you, perfect example on the iPhone, you can create an iPhone and then build it uh, in with like a notes app and an email app and a calendar app and a music app and that's it. Yep. Great, you made all the investment in the apps and then your investment in the good it creates stops with the iPhone mm. because there's no app store. There's no way for other people to build economic activity on top of it and create mm-hmm. value. But the minute you turn into an app store, then you have things like Instagram, Uber, Lyft, yeah. multi, multi, multi-billion dollar companies and value for society created um, through that that leverage. And that's kind of what we did there. And it gets wonky fast in terms of the details. That's but, another thing that we take for granted. Yeah. That's that's so true. I mean, back in the day when we had flip phones, we're just phones prior to the iPhone. Without this ecosystem, there really was no platform to... And, and people did release like Palm Pilots and mm-hmm. stuff, right, back in the day and... And it was a very closed ecosystem, and you know it was very useful. A lot of people had it, but it didn't have that multiplier effect. Exactly. Saying. So we that built the store where, like, ultimately you could open up an app on your phone. Maybe that's yeah. the UX. We haven't quite gotten that far down the road. And you're a homeowner in a town, and it just tells, okay, you're in the town. What do you want? You want a battery? You want a Nest thermostat? You want a solar panel? You want an electric car that's going to be managed intelligently to help the overall system be more reliable and efficient? 
okay, here's how the economics work. Just click buy. And then maybe the option is like, okay, you can buy it for free, aka right. like no money down, then we'll figure out the financing. Or you can own it, and this is how you'll get money generated. And just make it extremely streamlined, make it technology agnostic, and give the choice to the user and enable the ecosystem to grow. That's ingenious. So that, that was what we did there, and it was super, super fun. I loved it. I actually just, just two days ago, um, I was getting uh, dinner with some friends, and uh, like a friend of a friend was there, and we were chatting. Turns out he had worked in the uh, energy industry. And long story short, um, I was telling about what I had done, and I was like, yeah, we were inspired by this one thing called Space Tag, which is the original name for it. And like, yeah, that's what we did. And he just gave me this look, and he was like, I made Space Tag. I'm like, oh, like, <laughs> what? <laughs> There's probably fewer than 100 people in the world working in this particular space, because it's so niche, and it's so just like a little bit beyond where most of the industry is at. Right. It was just a wild thing, where like, this is San Francisco. Like, if someone's working on it, you'll yeah. probably run into them here. Um, and that, in, in a sense, that's, that story illustrates why I wanted to come out to Haas, is I got the bug for creating things of value that help move things forward, and I wanted to get more of it. And so to me, Haas was the best place to, uh, to get involved in that creative process and to continue to upskill myself and expand my horizons in a way to maximize my chances of doing it again and again and again successfully down the road. So how did you get involved with uh, the dorm room fund? Yeah, so... Um, that was so what uh, is it? So I guess probably the place to start, right? Dormer Fund is a student-run venture capital company uh, targeting students. So by students for students is our tagline. Is this at Haas or at Berkeley or Dormer Fund? You know, by students for students. It is in four cities across the nation. So it's in Boston, San Francisco, New York, and Philadelphia. Mm. Um, its sole LP limited partner, the source of the money is First Round Capital, which is a seed stage investor. Um, they've invested in Uber, among others. Hmm. Basically, what it is is, uh, you know, we raise, I think we're on our second fund right now. I know we're on our second fund right now. And we get money from, door, uh, from First Round Capital. And as an investment team, we share the money across these four cities. And then there are seven partners, soon to be eight in San Francisco, similar numbers in each of those other cities drawn from the schools in those cities. So in San Francisco, that means Stanford and Berkeley, just by convention of where we are today. And mm-hmm. Boston, that's Northeastern, BU, Harvard, MIT. There yeah. have been BC partners in the past, uh, Tufts partners in the past. The students are partners in every sense of the word. We don't get paid, but what we do is we source deals, we do diligence on deals, we listen to the pitches from the companies if they pass through to that stage. We decide whether or not to invest in them, and then we do follow-up portfolio support. So it's a VC firm in every real sense of the word. In terms of our investments, we have standardized that just to make things simpler, and it's extremely founder-friendly because the mission of Dormer Fund is to help students become entrepreneurs, mm. uh, make that jump from learner to doer in the startup ecosystem, which is hard for a lot of people to do. Yeah. Um, so we uh, very, very founder-friendly terms. We offer $20,000 checks, which are safes. A safe note is basically an IOU. So what it is, is uh, in our case, zero discount, zero cap. So that means we'll give you $20,000 today. You give us nothing if you're the startup. When you raised a priced round for equity, uh, let's say you raised at a million dollars valuation. You give up however much of your company you give up to the, uh, to the VC based on how much money they're putting in. And our 20000 at that point will convert from an IOU note to equity. And the amount of equity we get is basically $20,000 divided by the valuation of your company. right? Um, and so in that instance, 20,000 over a million is 2%. So we would get 2% of your company then. Makes sense. Um, yeah, it, it's about as founder-friendly as things get in this world. Um, and that's by design. Um, about 200 companies have gone through the dorm fund process and been part of the portfolio. 
Um, just this last round of YC, we had seven companies in that, and the time before that, we had seven. Uh, we'll see how it is going forward. Uh, but it's really, really awesome, I think, in terms of its impact. And personally, as a partner, I find it really rewarding because I get to help mentor and launch companies uh, with much more leverage than I could ever do as an independent person. So I've learned a lot, and I'd like to think I've had some impact. I really, really think it's a valuable thing. How did you get involved? Uh, I found out about it kind of serendipitously. I had a friend, actually from McKinsey, um, also from Wesleyan through a friend of a friend, who was a partner there. Uh, There's like 3,000 of you a year. There's only 3,000 <laughs> of us, yeah. Um, so yeah, a friend of a friend. Um, they were doing dorm room fund when I was looking at Haas. And they had mentioned, oh, you should come to Haas. Like, if you have a startup and it's good, maybe I can fund you. I was like, yeah, okay, this is the Silicon Valley thing. I don't even know what you're talking about. Dorm right. room fund, okay. Like, is this out of your dorm room? Like, what is this thing? <laughs> Um, but then when it came to fall at Haas and it's time to get involved in clubs, I was like, oh, I wonder what that thing was. Just reached out to my friend, learned a little more. And there's a, uh, there's an application process. Um, you know, you basically send in a written application and there's two rounds of interviews conducted by the current partners mm. and, uh, it goes from there. That is really cool, but it doesn't just target, um, undergrads either, right? No, it doesn't. Okay. So. Uh, the only rules we have at Dorm Room Fund is that at least one founder has to have graduated school mm. within the past six months. That could be undergrad, could be grad, could be medical school, um, law school, anything. Can they, can they be still in school? Oh, of course, oh, okay. yeah. But so up to so in school or up to graduating in the last six months. Got it. Um, so that's what we look at. That's our criteria. But yeah, it, it's it may draw from partners at Cal and Stanford in the Bay Area, and probably a very high fraction of our investments come from those schools, just by virtue of network effects. But we've looked at people from any number of schools. There's no criteria there. We have an online website. If you have a good startup and you're interested, just submit an application, and, and we'll get back to you. So, uh, last question is: What has your experience been at Haas so far? And uh, you know, we've been here for a year now. And what are you looking forward to in the coming year? Yeah, I mean, Haas has been fantastic. You know, I came to Berkeley having launched this internal startup, but, you know, when you just look at my resume or my LinkedIn, it's McKinsey and then the New York Power Authority, whatever that is, mm -hmm. right? But I've had this interest and experience in doing startup stuff, uh, both in those two and then in prior parts of my life. And Haas has helped me lean into that world uh, much more than I ever could have done on my own. So not only am I a dorm room fund partner, but uh, I'm also one of the two co one of the three, excuse me, co-presidents of uh, BEA, which is the Berkeley Entrepreneurs Association, a Haas specific club for now that we're aiming to grow. So that's been really, really rewarding personally. Um, again, similar mission of trying to help startups get formed and launch. Uh, and then the uh, the third hat that I wear is I'm on the Center for Responsible Businesses Student Advisory Board. So this is a somewhere between an academic center and a student club. It's like a hybrid organization where uh, it's focused on promoting what they view to be, what we view to be, responsible businesses. So business advancing the public good. And given my interest in renewable energy, um, as well as startups, I think it's a nice trifecta of working on the startup side, on the investing side, and on this area of responsible in business, whatever that uh, turns out as in those ecosystems. So it's been really, really cool from that perspective. Met a lot of great people. The culture is obviously a huge part of why I came here. And I've been able to work on my technical skills while I'm here as well, taking classes uh, at the uh, EECS department, which is really, really awesome. Oh, really? Okay. Um, I'm actually really, really excited that they've launched the MET program for undergrads. And my, my, my goal, my pet project on the side is to keep pushing to create something similar for grad students. A lot of different schools have uh, combined MBA, MS, and computer science uh, departments. Yeah. It's a growing trend, and I think uh, it's an obvious slam dunk to have something similar at Berkeley, given it's a world-class engineering and business schools. Mm -hmm. And um, what are you looking forward to? 
I'm very fortunate I'll be going to a VC company called uh, Data Collective down in Palo Alto. So they are a sector-focused VC fund. They pay particular attention to uh, big data-enabled applications, deep tech-oriented things, ML, AI, all that stuff. Um, They've got investments across sectors that leverage those technological developments. So they have space investments. They have biotech investments for computational biology. They obviously have IT investments. um, And that's something that I have a lot of interest in. They have energy investments. So it's something I'm very interested in personally. And I'm excited to see what I learn and what I get to uh, see up close then and who I meet. So it'll be a lot of fun. Be interested to follow up with you afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right, well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Adam. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in today. My aim is to bring the Haas community closer together through your stories. We're always looking for Hossies willing to share their stories and experiences so that we can give you more insights into the different programs, different careers, and ultimately different perspectives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please feel free to email me for suggestions on how I can improve this podcast, or if you have any recommendations on people or content you'd like to hear. My email is reachshawn at berkeley.edu. That's spelled R-E-A-C-H-S-E-A-N at berkeley.edu.